Welcome to the Green Majority, Canada's longest-running environmental news hour. We're out of CIUT 89.5 FM in Toronto, and on many community radio stations around the country, and on podcast websites. And I'm David Franklin Irwin Hostetter. I'm Stephen Christian Irwin Hostetter. And I am Lauren Elizabeth Corlatour. And you're joining us for our New Year's Eve episode, which is so exciting. You get to listen to this at noon. And then I don't know if you're if you're a day drinker, you get to do that. And then you get to like, oh, well, you probably don't get to go with your friends. There was a momentary lapse of judgment where I was like, it was a post-COVID world. And it was like, and then you go get to make out with a stranger. But you absolutely do not go get to make out with a stranger tonight at midnight. So... Yeah, sorry to even pretend you live in that world. We we almost got excited, we almost got hopeful there for a second, and oof, mistake. Yeah, for like ten seconds, it's a bit of a time warp. <laughs> so, Is, sorry. Excuse me. I apologize. Excuse me. I apologize. The clock quickly approaches the hour when it strikes twenty twenty two, two two two. The angel number two hundred and twenty two. The year in which all of our dreams come true. I saw somebody on Twitter frame it as twenty twenty two like it's like Mm. the second go at 2020 well it's definitely still 2020 absolutely but uh, 2022 is without a doubt going to unfold into a glorious raiment and streams of uh of alabaster translucent um what's the word what's the word i'm looking for how on earth can i know what you're looking for (laughs) you just said alabaster translucent and then you're third searching for a third any word could be next amber colored viscous light all right streaming from the the skies and what we're going to do is we're going to go through all of the stories that stefan thinks are most important that occurred in 2021 and we might be providing updates on them or and then we're going to comment on those correct yeah i mean all of the stories i think are most important might be a little overstatement but a a bunch of the stories that we covered throughout the year as sort of a wrap-up for things that happened that year, you might have forgotten because it feels forever. So our, our, our large general topics are projects, then we'll get into policies, and then we'll com- we've combined activism and weather events into, into one section for the end. And then we'll be ending the show with a set of, of thoughts for the new year. The anticipation of another year of existence. That's true. Which, for all intents and purposes, is a good thing. <laughs> All right, let's dive into these projects. Biden canceled Keystone XL. Great. <laughs> Honestly, if that was the only news story from this year, we could end this episode being really positive. Unfortunately, the rest of this doesn't go so well. So in January, Biden canceled Keystone XL, right? Yeah. Okay. Now, uh, line three. <clears throat> so there's still some activists camped out near the line three pipeline which was completed this year by Enbridge in, uh, what state is that? Line three, Minnesota. Minnesota, right. Uh, goes through a couple states. The activists plan to stay behind to monitor the pipeline and fly drones to investigate environmental damage created from the construction of the pipeline and possibly be ready to fight other resource extraction projects that are relatively close to the camp. Um, And the drone images that they're going to take will be used to strengthen the White Earth Band's rights of nature claim about wild rice. Uh, The claim cannot shut down the pipeline, but it could help build a precedent for other resource cases, according to MinPost. Regarding Enbridge's Line 5 pipeline, which is very old and still operating under 
part of Lake Michigan. Joe Biden said in November that he would not shut down the pipeline, which is what Gretchen Whitmer, the governor of Michigan, has been trying to do, but that his administration would study the potential economic consequences of shutting it down. Gretchen Whitmer abandoned the federal court case she had filed against Enbridge earlier in the year in order to avoid the delay tactics that Enbridge was employing, and instead focus on her original case from 2019 in state court. Um, And Enbridge, meanwhile, is trying to convince the U.S. government that a replacement of the 68-year-old pipeline, which would dig a hole under that slim portion of Lake Michigan the pipeline is currently flowing through, is worthy of funding from Biden's Build Back Better plan. Now, I'm confused about Biden's plans. Did he pass the Build Back Better? Did he, did no. he, he passed something. They passed the infrastructure, uh, the infrastructure bill, bill. Which had climate stuff in it. Yes. But it's not the Build Back Better. No. They, they At one point, they had connected those two because they were really concerned that they'd be hived off and then the second one would get passed. Mm-hmm. And then they went ahead and passed the infrastructure bill. The Build Back Better plan is still being worked on, but yeah. we'll see. So the Build Back Better plan is the $2.2 trillion I mean, it keeps going down in numbers. Who knows or what who number knows will be when it, it actually gets passed. But what they passed was not the Build Back Better plan. It was the infrastructure bill. Infrastructure bill, which yeah. included climate stuff. Yes. Okay. So Enbridge is looking for money in the future to be part of that Build Back Better thing for their replacement. Okay. The Alton gas storage plant in Nova Scotia, which we recently mentioned, was defeated by Mi'kmaq grassroots resistance. Alton gas planned to store natural gas in underground salt caverns, but was met with local opposition. The Nova Scotia Supreme Court ruled in 2020 that the consultation progress, the consultation process did not engage Aboriginal title and treaty rights, and the company canceled its plans in November 2021. Five months ago, Mi'kmaq water protectors, along with members of the Council of Canadians and climate justice activists, also defeated the huge Goldboro liquid natural gas plant that was proposed for Nova Scotia. The company uh, Paraday Energy was outed as looking for $1 billion in subsidies from the federal government and backed down from the project after intense opposition. Doug Ford has, of course, been trying to get more highways built all year, um, some of which are, would, would dig up parts of the green belt, which he swore not to touch. And finally, Wet'suwet'en opponents to the coastal gas link pipeline uh, are, have recently called for direct actions against RBC which is funding the liquid natural gas pipeline that's going through their land. RBC, I think, is like a, the main funder or the biggest funder or something. I don't know if they're the, they're the main bankroller, but they're, I think they're the, the largest, right? For what's RBC, it? Coastal Gas Link, yeah. the terminal. I believe so, but I also just, from what I understand, like RBC is the biggest financer of oil and gas in Canada, like period. And it's like one of the top five globally. So when in doubt, it's most likely RBC. So those are our those are those are the projects that we looked at. Yeah. So what we're going to do in each of these sections is do a quick uh, something good, something bad, and something to pay attention to. So starting with the good news on these projects, Lauren. Well, I'm I'm kind of just reiterating what David said, but like there there are a couple big wins from this past year that are really exciting, and I mean like we we all know a lot of um, I can't swear on air a lot of not good things happened this year, but like two big wins. Biden, yes, canceled Keystone XL. That's fantastic. And then the other one, which is a homegrown one, which is kind of, I don't know, 
obviously not more exciting, but like just as exciting. And I wish it got more news and more coverage was that like the Alton gas project was canceled. And like, that's so exciting because it was such a tangible win for, for the East coast, which is a really hard and really sort of like fraught battleground that doesn't get a lot of attention. Um, it was fought by, um, Mi'kmaq land, land and water protectors and some really awesome settler activists for years and years and years, this has been going on. And it's like, I don't know, it wasn't a very sexy project to, to, to have eyes on. Like it was like, um, these salt caverns that were going to be cleared out and the salt was going to be pushed down the river. So it was going to like take this otherwise freshwater reserve and make it weirdly briny. And like, nobody knew what the effects of that, uh, on the ecosystem were going to be. And then they were going to be used to store, um, natural gas. So it's like, bottom line, this is a project that wasn't getting a ton of attention, uh, nationally, but there was like some really, really strong organizing that had happened behind it. And it was a win. And like, that was so exciting. So for me, like, that's a very good thing that we should focus on. And like, anytime we do have these tangible wins, it's like, let's point to them and let's celebrate them because it gives people a reason to keep fighting because it gives you proof that like, no, your efforts do count. The work you do does matter. And like, this is why. For sure. And I, I was actually had a conversation today about the tension between declaring your victories when they're half victories and celebrating those ones versus, you know, accepting that you're not getting everything you want. But I, but in some of these scenarios, like, you know, when the project gets canceled, that's just a win. That's the time to, you know, just celebrate and, and cheer the, so for the bad, which is what I get this time, there are many remaining ongoing fights, you know, uh, K Keystone XL, not Keystone XL, Oh my God, what's the wow. acronym? TMX. TMX, there it is. Wow. Um, I mean, they're all X's and, you know. It's, um, pipelines in order, stuff. Uh, Trans Mountain or TMX and the Coastal Gas Link being two of the incomplete uh, yet still plowing ahead examples of this. But what is also clear is that while the focus on pipelines has succeeded in some forms, we have completely failed to make the connection to fossil fuels in other ways. You know, whether it's the fact that Biden's opening up more land for drilling, which is fossil fuel infrastructure, it's just not a pipeline through other lands. It's just pipeline on public lands or on, you know, other lands. Or Doug, Fon Doug Ford's election pitch basically being build more highways. You know, we're not successfully articulating that all fossil fuel infrastructure has to stop. We're, we've successfully really zoned in on pipelines being a very you know, uh, clear target, but all of the rest of the ways we're still building our society for fossil fuel infrastructure continues unabated. And that has to be the next big step. And even in the, the faster we can get to get that done is the faster we can actually get to, I think the actual most important thing on these projects is that all of these projects we're highlighting are projects that we're trying to stop making the problem worse. What we completely still lack are big projects trying to solve the problem. You know, we don't have any of these audacious projects that are really trying to get us to the place where we can actually live in a zero carbon world. You know, where are the high-speed rail networks, you know, across North America? Where are the, the big attempts to actually fully, you know, uh, get off of fossil fuels with, with renewable energy in in different provinces where are these really big uh, projects that will require a fair amount of work they don't yet exist and we have to see that shift you know we have to see that shift from the when we're talking about climate change projects from it being 
stopping the bad things and doing the good things. Now over to you on for, for something to pay attention to. Yes. And of course, there's an abundance of things to pay attention to. We need to be alert all of the time. And it's it's a lot. It's anxiety inducing. But no, but something I'm going to be watching over the next year specifically as it pertains to these projects is like we're entering this era of um, climate policy in Canada where we're finally starting to tease out um, some regulations and some climate gov- climate governance issues and like uh, questions around net zero and, and what kind of like the rules and the principles that guide those regulations are going to be. Um, and two sort of things that came up that, that aren't even actually even policy yet. They're just pledges that were made this, this past year, but it's like, there was one where it was like, we've, we've got to promise that there's going to be an emissions cap rolling out sometime in the next little while. Um, and we've got a pledge that uh, that there will be like no foreign investment or no investment in foreign oil projects from Canada. And again, those are just two really general pledges, but those are two pledges that we need to follow and we need to um, actually like push for follow through on and um, and also make sure that they're being implemented in like really meaningful ways and that the text that surrounds them is impactful and actually has like good solid regulation in it. Because for instance, with something like the emissions cap, an emissions cap nationally could the gov- the federal government can't um, get into like managing projects because like projects like pipelines are um, projects like pipelines and mines rather are at um, a provincial level. But in instituting this national federal gas and oil emissions cap. Um, what we could eventually see is that a cap on emissions means that projects can't be implemented because it would like push us over that emissions cap. Now the government can't explicitly say that because again, it gets into issues of jurisdictionality, but like we need to pay attention to the language of that regulation when it does eventually come out, because if it's implemented incorrectly, what it could actually just do is give permission for these companies to put their projects out into practice and then just like say they're going to um, abate them with carbon capture and storage and with all kinds of like, I don't know, technology and like pie in the sky, unicorn magic. Um, And if you don't remember what abatement means, go back and listen to last week's episode. But basically, yeah. So pay attention to sort of these pledges that came out because they could be really impactful and they could determine um, how many of these projects end up going forward because there are still some that are still on the docket. Like you said, T. Yeah, Max is still there. Coastal GasLink is still there. There's an endless number of like in C2 projects in the tar sands that are like still potentially going to be going to go forward. But these plans are made could end up actually resulting in some of these projects being slowed down. And who knows, maybe our new minister of environment and climate change will, I don't know, follow through on his activist pledges and, and help to slow down some of these projects. We'll see. That's just what I'll be watching over the next little bit at least all right and with that that leads us directly into our policy section so joe biden back to mr biden mr joe biden appeared to be planning possibly to usher in a profound change in u.s energy and climate policy when he took office which stefan loudly lauded i mean those were good ideas and uh, he hasn't gotten much done. The Democrats did pass their infrastructure bill, which had in climate initiatives, signed into law November 15th, included $555 billion for climate initiatives, a nefarious angel number, unlike 222, 
slightly nefarious. But Nicholas Kuznets points out for Inside Climate News that the bill also gives huge tax breaks for, for carbon capture, thereby giving more money to fossil fuel companies. And I don't know anything good about the bill, so you're going to have to fill that in. Hmm. Uh, I'm just writing in what's terrible about it. <laughs> so also it's come to light out that the Biden administration has approved more oil and gas permits per month on public lands than the Trump administration did during its first three years before a bunch of them started doing it um, in 2020 before before they were afraid Biden would take office and stop them. Uh, and then Jamie Henn of 350.org points out in the energy mix that Biden is trying to build clean energy while not winding down fossil fuels which is the strategy that's wrong with renewable energy expansion because it can increase our overall consumption while not necessarily reducing our emissions. But in December, the Biden administration banned U.S. government backing for financial and diplomatic support for fossil fuel projects outside the U.S. All right, I have more. Um, oil, Stefan said oil glut. Oil glut. What is that? It's too much oil, the prices fall? No, it was... What happened, it happened in February or something? Yeah, when... Because of COVID, people stopped using oil, and the price of oil for a second went literally negative. So right. you could not give away oil for a t- period of time. Right. That happened in 2021. Uh, the Canadian Supreme Court ruled in 2021 that Trudeau's carbon tax was indeed constitutional. I've called it a carbon tax. Isn't that right? Yeah, it's a carbon tax. Canada's climate accountability bill was passed in Sorry. 2021, which you'll remember we spoke about. No one was sure whether it would actually happen. Canada's Climate Accountability Bill was passed in 2021. Uh, The International Energy Agency changed its tune on fossil fuels this year in its yearly report that surprisingly argued for a doubling of clean energy investment and finance and for a steep decline in fossil fuel use. Uh, There were a bunch of COVID-19 relief packages sort of uh, re-injecting the economy with money, right, that were Mm -hmm. going to... that were potentially going to go to some environment stuff. It was suggested that they might, they should, they did not. Right? I mean, not nearly to the extent that we hoped. Okay. China opened its carbon market in 2021. Is it international or just inside their borders? No, it's a internal. So China has a carbon market now. Uh, Justin Trudeau was gloriously elected as the <laughs> leader of another liberal minority government this year. He appointed climate activist Stephen Guibeau as climate minister. And Guibo is currently working with the Natural Resources Minister, Jonathan Wilkinson, to put a cap on greenhouse gas emissions from oil and gas production, which is what Lauren mentioned. Uh, COP26, of course, occurred in Glasgow this year after being postponed by COVID restrictions. Many said it was a failure, but others insisted that it inched the world forward on climate and kept 1.5 degrees Celsius hanging by a thread. So I would like to know, is it true that it inched the world forward on climate? Because some people were like, you know, maybe this climate change thing, we're going to deal with it now. Maybe. You know, after that, they were like, they were interested. Uh, there was the IPCC report, which I don't recall anything about. <laughs> the, the report literally basically said it was a code red for humanity <laughs> and indicated that we were like that in drastic, drastic action was required. Code Red report that everybody forgot about. Okay. And BOGA. Beyond Oil and Gas Alliance. There was a Beyond Oil and Gas Alliance that was formed. Yeah, I can dig into BOGA. That was going to be my bad thing. Okay. Wow. I was going to make it my good thing. BOGA is good. Canada not joining. Okay. Okay, great. 
So I'm going to say that there obviously were a few significant policy wins for the good thing. You know, the IEA traditionally very oil, uh, very pro oil coming out, basically saying that no new oil infrastructure could come out. You know, Canada signing on to the agreement to end public uh, funding for fossil fuel projects, the Beyond Oil and Gas Alliance that Canada is not a part of, but that uh, other or that the first it is the first time that a group of nations have agreed to not get not pull out more fossil fuels from their own territories, which is huge. Um, uh, It's often hard to my takeaway here is that it's often hard to see when you're in the middle, it's often said that it's hard to see when you're in the middle of a revolution that will later seem inevitable. And I don't, I'm not willing to say we're that far yet, but it's very possible that a few things happened this year that we looked back upon as tipping point moments. You know, I think the IEA uh, and I think the, and BOGA specifically are two examples of of that, which like, you know, it's not, we're not there yet. We're not not uh, you know to answer your question. Did the uh, did COP inch us closer? I mean, there were new goals stated. Those new goals were better than the old goals. Will that happen? We'll see. But I do think there are a couple things that happened this year that were specifically good and that were new and good, which I think is unique. But it's on to the bad. On to the bad. And on the flip side of that is because, yeah, I totally agree with you. There there are some indications that like this sea change is coming. This sea ch- like it's like there's there's a bit of we are we are potentially very slowly turning this ship around. I guess my only thing at this point is it's like, you know how like they did try to turn the Titanic around and that's actually what like screwed <laughs> over. Because if they just hit the iceberg head on, it probably would have been fine because it's like more structurally sound at the tip versus mm. like along the side. Anyway, that's not a good analogy. I mean, I, if you, when you started saying ship, I thought you were going to say that we we're the ship that got stuck in the Suez Canal, which also happened this year. Mm, oh, you that know? was funny, though, wasn't it? That gave us a lot of good memes. It gave us a lot of memes. It definitely made, like, it definitely really hurt the world economy in some ways, but also a lot of great memes. So, you know. Yeah. Um, also, money isn't real. I don't care. No, I'm kidding. I, don't, I can't. Ugh. Do I care? I don't know. Memes are more real. Memes are real. <laughs> That's the takeaway. Anyway, moving on to what sucked. Um, so going back to you and referencing BOGA and to, to confirm what that is, uh, BOGA is an acronym, obviously stands for beyond oil and gas alliance. And, uh, that's a sort of a group that formed, I don't think just this past year, maybe it did, maybe it's a little bit older, but it's, um, it describes itself as an international coalition of governments and stakeholders working together to facilitate the managed phase out of oil and gas production. Basically these member or uh, countries come together and by joining BOGA, uh, the Beyond Oil and Gas Alliance, they're saying we are committing to phasing out oil and gas production within our country. Um, and something really cool that happened this year was that Quebec joined BOGA. So right now it's a, it's a fairly small group of members. It's you've got Denmark, Costa Rica, France, Greenland, Ireland, Quebec, Sweden, and Wales. So some of those are like genuinely oil and gas producing countries and some of them maybe not so much. Um, but what was a bummer is that like not only did you get Canada maybe like not committing when, when asked about BOGA, I can't remember if it was like a public statement or literally just something that was said behind closed doors, but like Gibo basically said like, no, we will not be signing on to BOGA, which I mean, isn't unsurprising. Like we're, we, we are tethered to the tar sands and refuse to be anything other than that. But like to actually hear it come out of his mouth was disappointing and was an indication that like, yes, the rest of the world and even parts of Canada 
are totally on board with this and are and are turning that ship around and Canada still remains totally stuck in the mud refuses to use the type of language we need to refuses to actually like at the end of the day make these big commitments that we need um and and that's disappointing and that's a bad thing and and that continues continues to be a a point of umbrage to put it really lightly <laughs> I will to add one other bad thing to just put uh, to make Dave happy, the other thing that has mentioned is the complete and utter failure of the United States to get anything done on climate change. The you know the infrastructure bill, while has some climate stuff, most people think would be needs to be quote unquote unlocked by the Build Back Better bill. They sort of work in tandem, and so a lot of the stuff being offered there is not going to be as useful as it could be if they don't pass this other bill and. Honestly, the Biden administration is now currently planning on bringing back student debts in 2021, 2022. So they're going to get crushed in the midterms and we'll all, you know, die of heat death. Um, but the on a more but related to that in some weird way, the interesting thing that I would want to talk about is I think we need to keep an eye on China's carbon market because it's a huge task, obviously, to set up a carbon market within a anywhere and let alone within a country of its size. But I do wonder how quickly it will shift once they have a successful market sort of covering most of their economy, how quickly it will become a requirement to have at least the price of carbon equivalent to not face, say, tariffs from China. And given how much China makes, you can imagine how quickly a lot of other places would probably fall in line and potentially even buy into their carbon market if that was an option. You know, I'm not saying this is part of their plan, but I, you can you could you could imagine a world where a lot of places around China want to keep a relatively version of free trade with them, and so they will adopt or even sign on to China's carbon market. Which, in the absence of other places doing real action on climate change, would be a pretty easy way for China to expand its you know global power. And honestly, the, the way the United States is going, I don't really see them coming back with any real strong ideas here. So. Not saying this is going to be a good thing. China is rife with uh, um, so human rights abuses. Human rights abuses. That's exactly what I was looking for. Thank you. Um, but it's something to pay attention to because I think it it could happen, and it's something that I that I would say should be watched. Well, and it could also. It's just like. Obviously, like we haven't got carbon markets sorted out at the international level yet. It continues to be something that like we come back to at every COP basically. But like depending on how China's market unfolds, that could indicate that that, that could be a bit it, it could be trend setting. Yeah. But we did get those two mics back. Those, <laughs> those two Michaels. Welcome home, Mike. So we 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 our kidnapping of the Huawei executive was good. Given that, <laughs> so like we didn't kidnap her. She yeah. was just like in prison, yeah. but like not real prison. She was in like rich people prison. She was yeah. in like a crazy condo in like Vancouver. She's fine. Yeah. <laughs> Wait, what do you want to cut? Everything about the Michaels, really. What's wrong with, the, what's wrong with mentioning the Michaels? <laughs> what if the Michaels are listeners and they're like upset? And we return with the Green Majority. Last episode of 2021. It's New Year's Eve. The ball is getting ready to drop. They're gussying it up as we speak. One day I'll tell you guys about the time that I was in Key West 
for New Year's Eve. And there they don't drop a ball. They drop a drag queen on a giant sparkly high heel. I'm assuming I'm assuming gracefully dropped. Yeah. And like they don't like drop. They like slowly lower. (laughs) Nice. That sounds nice. I'd be down for that. Uh, Okay, so the weather 2021. It rained on the 1st of January. On the 2nd of January, it also rained. (laughs) I'm almost certain that did not happen. I didn't plug my computer in, sorry. It snowed on the 3rd. Stefan left. He needs to plug his computer in. Reminded me from like about that Mean Girls line. And on the third day, God created the Remington raffle. So man could buy the dinosaurs and the homosexuals. In late November, Justin Trudeau said that the impacts of the climate crisis have come sooner than expected. After huge rainstorms hit both coasts and British Columbia saw, well, two coasts. Like we have, we, I don't know what's going on in the north. How many coasts are up there? I don't know. Anyway, both coasts. The British Columbia saw mudslides and flooding that disrupted supply chains and drowned thousands of farm animals. The lush Sumas Prairie was flooded, which is in constant danger of turning back into the shallow lake that it was 100 years ago before settlers pumped the water out for farming and destroyed local indigenous economies that relied on the lake. The flooding came only a couple months after a heat dome lit parts of the province on fire, which destabilized the mountains and contributed to the landslides landslides that were later triggered by the intense rainfall. And Ontario also saw record fires this past summer, after seeing 40% less rain than usual for three months. An area larger than the GTA was burned, mostly in the northwest. I'm going right on to activism? Yep. And in activism this year, The Ferry Creek protests were called the largest act of civil disobedience in Canadian history, as activists and Indigenous land defenders blocked logging roads on Vancouver Island to stop companies from cutting down some of the last remaining old-growth forests in B.C. The B.C. Supreme Court decided not to extend the court injunction against the protesters for another year in September because the actions of police were making the court look bad. But the courts issued another temporary injunction a few weeks later. Uh, they're supposed to announce, they're supposed to make another announcement of some kind on the injunction any day now. Uh, ten seniors were recently arrested blocking the roads again, but the number of protesters has dwindled and the 500 to 1,000 year old trees are still being cut down. In bank organizing, I don't know what to say about bank organizing because Stefan interviewed a bunch of people about it and I did not listen to those interviews. Please don't write right that. <laughs> but I will say, so I, don't, I, don't, I don't know what happened with the bank organizing. Stefan can fill us in. But I will say that Moody's Investment Services is warning that banks stand to lose $22 trillion that are invested in carbon-intensive industries because these investments are risky should the global economy move away from emissions-heavy activities. In addition, the energy mix states, quote, the European Central Bank recently said that most of the 112 institutions that it oversees have no concrete plans to shift their business strategies to take the climate emergency into account. So bank organizing, important. Uh, there were school school climate strikes returned this year. That's even by climate strikes, right? Yeah. The Fridays for Future school strikes returned this year. 
uh, Grassy Narrows got funding for their mercury treatment facility, which they described as like a first step towards maybe eventually stopping to petition the government to deal with the over 50-year-old mercury poisoning that uh, was dumped into uh, their river by a um, paper mill. Uh, and finally, the Indian farmers' strike. We talked about this many times. We had a long thing on it in the spring. The Indian farmers' strike. The farmers in India that occupied the outskirts of Delhi for an entire year. It was, uh, I think, November, December of 2020 that they started protesting. They've returned home victorious against the government of Narendra Modi. So the farmers have won. Uh, and Modi fast-tracked the repeal of the agricultural reforms that would have privatized and corporatized the industry further, and, as the farmers argued, led to impoverishment and starvation of small farmers. So the tens of thousands of farmers recently left the site after occupying it for almost all of 2021. And in addition, France 24 reported, quote, the government said it will form a commission on fixing minimum prices for crops, and promised to stop prosecuting farmers for burning crop stubble that is blamed for polluting Delhi's air every winter. And the government also agreed to pay compensation to the families of the more than 700 farmers who died during the demonstrations and withdraw criminal cases lodged against protesters during the year-long campaign against the farm laws. So when they say they're, they're forming a commission on fixing minimum prices, who knows what they're, I don't know what, they're going to do but the idea is that the government agrees to pay a minimum price for whatever for the crops that are produced which guarantee which protects farmers against market fluctuations and so they don't starve if if the prices go down or something and that uh is all for the activism and weather all right so i'm starting us off this time with a good thing and obviously like the big good thing is is what david just went over is is like the wins that came out of the indian farmer strike the good thing I'm going to talk about, and this has a lot of, I'm putting up a lot of hedges, a lot of qualifiers, because I don't, I don't want to be misinterpreted here. I'm not saying that extreme weather events are a good thing. People have lost their lives. Bazillions of animals have died. Lives are irrevocably changed and it's terrible. I will say, oh, I don't even know how to, because it's not a positive, but like one slightly positive thing to have come out of all of these extreme weather events people are experiencing in Canada is I think there's a certain segment of the population that is perhaps now finally waking up to the fact that like climate change is here and now it's no longer something that at least in Canada, a relatively, a very wealthy Northern nation can say like, oh yes, it's terrible. And it happens to the people in Bangladesh or, oh yes, it's terrible. And it happens to people up North. It's like, oh yes, it's terrible. And it's happening to people that live in Vancouver kind of thing, right? Like it's, Again, by no means is it a good thing that these terrible things are happening and people are feeling the very real effects. But what is a good thing is that the discourse is shifting and that these issues that were once nebulous are now concrete and real and um, and, and are being felt every day and are being discussed in ways that they weren't discussed before. And I'm, and I'm hopeful that perhaps that will result in a level of change and people 
people taking these issues seriously in a way that perhaps they weren't previously. So that is, that is something that I'm choosing to focus on as a good thing or frame in a positive light, despite (laughs) the fact that it is ultimately terrible. Yes. Right. Yeah. I mean, I I will say just very quickly on the Indians farmer strike, this is an outcome I truly did not believe was possible. What? At the beginning of the year, when we first uh, mentioned this, maybe it was even, maybe it was even the end of last year. When I was like, this is what they're doing. Yeah, I think it was the end. I think it was the, towards the end of last year when they were first mentioned on right. this show. You said specifically, this is proof that protesting works. I mean, oh no. I mean, that's great. <laughs> because you literally listen to it so you know. And I mean, now you're telling me that you never even believed the words that were exiting your mouth. Well, or I was more right than I was giving myself credit for. You know, like, like let's be real here. This is a unbelievable victory against a government that seemed predestined to do this no matter what kind of fight like it, this is proof that that activism works <laughs> like i'm just going to re-say what i said last time apparently but let's be real here this was an unending battle it was the what, what largest protest ever in terms of number of people you know it was held they held strong for over a year and successfully shifted this policy you know, back. And that is just a massive, massive victory for, you know, democracy and for people who believe the world could be better everywhere. Um, the bad that I, that I will cover is, in part, just as a note, you'll notice that we didn't mention the Wet'suwet'en uh, in the activism space uh, because it was mentioned in the project space. So the it was early mentioned early on, and so doubling up uh, didn't make as much sense. But... I do think that the bad has to go to the BCNDP this year, who, while being theoretically the most left-wing government in power in Canada, manages to be the government so consistently sending, you know, using basically military tactics to remove protesters in multiple parts of their uh, of their land to ultimately serve the benefit of extractive corporate industry. I, I truly cannot imagine a bigger failure from a left-wing government than what we've managed to see out of out of the BC NDP, given what they purport to support. You know, they came in and was like, "Oh, we're going to we are going to you know um, you know move forward undrip. We're going to do all these other things," and yet, clearly. They either have to admit that government is so captured that even they who really want things better can't deliver, or they have to accept that they actively don't believe in the things they're saying. You have one of two options. And a couple days ago, you know, they, they had BCNDP had their convention, and Horgan was roundly supported, and a lot of the shifts that were trying to do were not successful. So kudos to everyone out in BC trying to fight for that to be better. But I think if they're... I cannot believe that if I had to single out one government in all of Canada, like obviously many other governments have failed, look at COVID in Alberta, but I mean, the BCNDP, given what they said they were going to do or what they purport to be selling and what they've managed to do this year have got to be the bad story here. Uh, what's interesting, Lauren? So you briefly mentioned, Dave, that um, that the youth climate strikes are like a thing again. Um, and, and something that I've been thinking about a lot and like my friends in real life will know this and they're gonna be like, Lauren, you're weird and obsessing about young people, but it's like, so, so over the last like two years, obviously a lot of in-person actions haven't, haven't been possible because of COVID. 
But all I've been thinking about lately is the fact that like youth climate strikes, I think started in like 2018, maybe, um, which was five years ago. So if you consider that, like, I don't know, maybe the average one, the average person participating in that was like 15, 16, it's like, those people are like very much coming of age now and graduating from like high school marching and like maybe a bit of university stuff to like, I don't know, they, they're just, it's this whole generation of young people who are actually coming of age this year in terms of like being able to get involved in activism and like new and interesting and cool ways beyond simply just like marching and what they were exposed to in high school. And we're finally maybe theoretically at some point this year coming out of COVID enough that big in-person actions can like really start to pick up speed. And I don't mean big in-person actions like marches. We have a million marches all the time, but like, I don't know. I'm, I'm really excited for what a young generation of activists can bring to the table this year. Um, as we see these people kind of like maybe age out of the youth climate strikes and, and into more like, I don't know, let's escalate. And, and that's something I'm going to be looking at is like, I know we endlessly like look to the youth and I'm sure they're all exhausted and they're just like, do your own stuff for (laughs) once. But like, that's kind of, I don't know, it's, it's something that I'm looking forward to this year is seeing how they maybe like hit the ground running as this generation of like young people who are like so unafraid of being labeled activists and have so much energy and so much gumption and so much knowledge. And it's like, cool. Now you're like adults and can actually like do what you want when you want. So I'm excited to see what they do and see how they shift the conversation because we have seen in the past that they really have been impactful that way. So, um, yeah. I'm also, if I can add one more thing, potentially interesting. This is finally the year where we get to uh, kick Doug uh, kick Doug Ford out of office. So that is also what I'm looking forward to in 2022 is organizing to get rid of Doug Ford. And I'm in Ottawa organizing around electing a new mayor because we just found out Jim Watson, who sucks, isn't running again. So we're very excited for that. Yeah. A lot of Twitter was very happy about that. Um, all right. So... Last thing we're going to do before the end of our show, which is the this is the last show of the year, one thought to end off the year. Um, Lauren, do you want to go first or shall I? Or do you want to go, Dave? Why don't you go first? Because you said yours was going to be a bummer. And mine's about maybe not being a bummer. All right. Mine is definitely a little bit about being a bummer. But mine is specifically about how I think the next place the climate conversation has to go is totally waking up to the fact that the wealth inequality is a massive, massive driver of climate change, and that the rich, uh, the richest people are also just horrendously more carbon intensive. Uh, I, th- this thought came to me. I, I think I want to do a longer show about it. I want to dive into it a little bit because the I saw once I saw it was a, there was a study recently that showed over the past few years. The top 10% of Canadian emissions, of, uh, the top 10% of people who make, uh, the, the richest 10% of Canadians, have their, their emissions, emissions have rose over the past five years. So like that. The bottom 90 have either stayed the same or decreased. So when you look at the sort of, un, the, the scale of Canadians still getting worse per capita, that's not 90% of Canadians. You know, that's the 10% of the richest people. And then you combine that to the other study that showed that Jeff Bezos's trip to space used more emissions than what one billion people will use in their lifetime. 
you cannot not understand that these two things are so so tied you know th th this apparently was the biggest year for super yacht sales they're spiking everyone we live in a terrible world when <laughs> everything is going on and yet super yachts are really really hitting the you're flying off the shelves and the last piece of total terrible people uh or totally terrible rich reasons or the ways in that capitalism is a, is in the inherent main problem comes like a day or two ago with the horrendous um tornado that went through Kentucky which killed you know a t I think over 100 people but a certain number of those people were in an Amazon warehouse where Amazon threatened to fire people who left despite the fact that they were in line from the tornado, ultimately having, I think, seven or eight of them end up dying because they were told they could not leave by Amazon despite being in line for a tornado. If the wealth of one man who's going to use enough carbon emissions than one billion people is being created by a set of people who are being threatened to that are being threatened to be fired if they cannot like when their lives are threatened how else can you not see that system that allows those two facts to be existence as the major problem we're facing and that is what I think we have to pay attention to next year is I think that conversation is because it's all well and good to blame you know ourselves generally for the emissions that we all use yes but like such a small percentage of people fly multiple times a year such a small percentage of people own super yachts a much smaller percentage own super yachts and even smaller percentage of people you know fly into space and these are the things that are massive massive emission creators and so like yes we have to do all our stuff so we all can live in a more sustainable society but like People cannot be this rich on a sustainable planet. It's just not possible. And kind of bouncing off that a little bit, um, when I was thinking about this, I was thinking more so like end of the year, beginning of the next year. What what do I want the what do I want the message to be? And I think, um, I don't know, sort of part and parcel to what you were saying, Steph. It's like it's 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 more obvious than ever before, especially when you think of like like I can't remember what the exact number you said, but like. Jeff Bezos is responsible for more emissions than the rest of the world could ever hope to be combined kind of thing. Um, so what I hope people hear when they hear that is that like, it's okay. You don't need to carry the burden of the world on your shoulders. Don't freak out. If you have to drive to the grocery store, it's going to be fine. It's not your fault. Um, and sort of bearing that in mind, I think what I want people to think about as, as they listen to this, maybe the day it comes out, which is on the 31st, which is a Friday, tomorrow is a Saturday. I know that tomorrow is January 1st and everybody's like, set your goals, lose weight, go to the gym, seize the day. And it's like, or just rest for a second. Cause I don't know about you, but we're recording this a little bit before the 31st. And like, I'm exhausted. I'm in a constant brain fog. I'm napping all the time. I need to take a break. You all need to take breaks too, because the last two years have been kicking our butt more than usual. And unfortunately the next, I don't know, 150 are also going to continue to kick our butts. Like it's, 
<laughs> the world is showing no signs of slowing down in the disasters it's throwing our way. And I think what that means is that when you can, you need to slow down and winter, especially the next like couple weeks of this, like weird nebulous. I don't know what day it is. I don't know what time it is, is a really good time to slow down and rest and rejuvenate because like the climate crisis will always be there. Wealth inequality, unfortunately will likely always be there. These are always efforts that will be there for you to come to. And you do need to come to, you do need to combat them. You do need to take to the streets. You do need to organize with your community. You do need to engage in mutual aid. You do need to work to overcome these issues as a societal, as a society. But like also take a rest because none of us are going to be able to show up and be our best selves as organizers, as activists, as people that care about climate, as people that care about wealth inequality, if we don't first like take a nap and collect our thoughts. So like do that please over the next, at least couple days, couple weeks, as we enter this period of like intense natural hibernation and your circadian rhythm is like begging for you to close your eyes instead of staring at your phone until 3am. Like I did, like, I'm not, I'm not saying this from like a place of sage wisdom. Like I suck at this. We all suck at this, but, um, but yeah, Take a beat because then once things gear up again in the new year, we're going to have to be fighting with more ferocity and tenacity than ever before. Um, yeah, that's my message for 2022. 2021 has come to a close. 2022, we're going to roll on through. <laughs> it was so nice until that part. <laughs> It's not easy being